Good afternoon. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, to be honest with you, normally when I walk up to the podium to speak, it's always about fraud and cybercrime and counterfeiting and an identity theft and embezzlement. Uh, but today they've asked me to do something totally different, and that is to talk a little bit about my life. So I'll kind of be like the entertainment for the uh, noon break. Uh, as many of you know, I've had a famous writer write a book about my life, a great film director make a movie about my life, a great musical director make a musical on Broadway that won the Tony about my life, and a popular television show on TV about my life. Interesting note that those very creative people, most of them have never met me personally. So <laughs> I assume that uh, they're telling my story from what would be their point of view. So I thought today I would just actually tell you the story from my point of view. I was uh, raised just north of New York City in Westchester County, New York. I was actually one of four children in the family, the so-called middle child of the four. I was educated there by the Christian Brothers of Ireland in a private Catholic school called Iona, where I went to school from kindergarten to high school. By the time I had reached the 10th grade and the age of 16, my parents, after 22 years of marriage one day, decided to get a divorce. Unlike most divorces where the children are usually the first to know, my parents were very good about keeping that a secret. I remember being in the 10th grade when the father walked in the classroom and asked a brother to excuse me from class. When I came out in the hallway, the father handed me my books and told me one of the brothers would drive me to the county seat in White Plains, New York, where I would meet my parents and they would explain what was going on. I remember the brother dropped me at the steps of a big stone building and told me to go on up the steps and that my parents would be waiting for me in the lobby. I remember climbing the steps, wondering uh, where I was, saw a sign on the window that said family court, but really didn't understand what that meant. When I arrived in the lobby, my parents were not there, but I was ushered into the back of an immense courtroom where my parents were standing before a judge. I couldn't hear what the judge was saying, nor my parents' response, but eventually the judge saw me at the back of the room and he motioned me to approach the bench. I walked up the stand in between my parents. I remember distinctly that the judge never looked at me. He never acknowledged I was standing there. He just read from his papers and said that my parents were getting a divorce. And because I was 16 years of age, I would need to tell the court which parent I chose to live with. I started to cry, so I turned and ran out of the courtroom. The judge called for a 10-minute recess, but by the time my parents got out to the lobby, I was gone. My mother never saw me again for about seven years until I was a young adult. Contrary to the movie, my father never saw me nor ever spoke to me again. In the mid-1960s, running away was a very popular thing for young people. A lot of them got caught up in Haight-Ashbury, the hippie scene, the drug scene. Instead, I took a few belongings from my home, packed them in a bag, boarded what was then the New Haven and Hartford Railroad for the short train ride down to Grand Central Terminal in New York. My father did own a stationery store, but actually in Manhattan, located on the corner of 40th and Madison. And like all of us in the family, we had to work in the store. So I made deliveries for my dad, I knew the city very well, so naturally I started looking for the same type of work. There are a lot of signs in the windows, stock boy, delivery boy, part-time. I'd walk in and apply. So tell me, young man, how old are you? Uh, 16. How far did you go in high school? 10th grade. I'll hire you. And I went to work for a small amount of money, a few hours a day, but I soon realized I couldn't support myself on that amount of money. I also realized that as long as people believed I was 16 years old, they weren't going to pay me any more money. At 16, I was six foot tall. I've always had a little gray hair. My friends in school said that once a week when we dressed for mass, I looked more like a teacher than a student. So I decided to lie about my age. In New York, we had a driver's license at 16. Back then, they didn't have a photo on them, just an IBM card. So I altered one digit of my date of birth. 
I was actually born in April of 1948, but I dropped that four, converted it to a three, and that made me 10 years older or 26 years old. I walked around applying for the same type of work. People gave me a little more money, a few more jobs, but even then it was difficult to make ends meet. One of the few things I had taken when I left home was a checkbook. My father had opened a checking account for me at a small community bank in Mount Vernon, New York. I had a little money in the account, so every so often I would write a check to supplement my income, $10, $20. The funds were there, the checks were good, but it was my friends, my peers who would say to me, you know, you're the only guy I know walks into a bank in the middle of Manhattan. You have no account there. You don't know a soul. You talk to somebody behind a desk and they okay your check. Oh, well, my checks are good. If I walked in that bank, they wouldn't touch my check. You walk in, they don't bat an eye. Years later, reporters would write and speculate that that was my upbringing, mannerisms, dress, appearance, speech, whatever it was, it was very easy to do. So consequently, when the money ran out, I kept writing those checks. <laughs> of course, checks started to bounce. Police started looking for me as a runaway, so I thought maybe it was a good time to start thinking about leaving New York City. But I was quite apprehensive about going to Chicago or Miami, wondered if they'd cash a New York check on a New York driver's license in Miami as quickly as they did in Manhattan. I was walking up 42nd Street one afternoon about 5 o'clock in the evening, 16 years old, pondering all of these things, when I started to approach the front door of an old hotel that used to be there called the Concord Hotel, now the Grand Hyatt. As I was just about to pass the front door, out stepped an Eastern Airline flight crew onto the sidewalk. Couldn't help but notice the captain, the co-pilot, the flight engineer, about three or four flight attendants dragging their bags to the curb to load them in a van to take them to the airport. As they loaded the van, I thought to myself, that's it. If I could pose as a pilot, I could travel all over the world for free. And I probably could get just about anybody, anywhere, to cash a check for me. So I walked up the street a little further to 42nd and Park. I went to cross over, but I heard a huge helicopter, so I looked up and there was New York Airways landing on the roof of the Pan Am building. Pan Am, the nation's flag carrier, the airline that flew around the world. I thought, what a perfect airline to use. So the next day, I placed a phone call to the executive corporate offices of Pan Am. When the switchboard was ringing, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to say. When they answered, Pan American Airlines, good morning, could I help you? Uh, yes, ma'am. I'd like to um, speak to somebody in, the, somebody in the purchasing department. Purchasing? One moment. The clerk came on and said, yes sir, maybe you can help me. My name is uh, John Black. I'm a co-pilot with a company based out of San Francisco. Been with the company about seven years. Never had anything like this come up before. Uh, what's the problem? Well, we flew a trip in here yesterday. We're going out today. Yesterday I sent my uniform out through the hotel to have it dry clean. Now the hotel and the cleaner said they can't find it. Here I am with the flight in about four hours. No uniform. Don't you have a spare uniform? Certainly, back home in San Francisco, but I never get it here in time for my flight. Do you understand that this will cost you the price of a uniform, not the company? I understand. Hold on, I'll be right back. Came back and said, my supervisor said, you need to go down to the well-built uniform company on Fifth Avenue. They're our supplier. I'll call them and let them know you're on your way. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to know, so I went down to the well-built uniform company. <laughs> Little fella, Mr. Rosen, fitted me out in the uniform. There were black gabardine, the three gold stripes on the arm, the gray hair. I certainly looked old enough to be the pilot. When it was all done, I said, how much do I owe you? Well, the uniform's $286. Said, no problem, I'll write you a check. <laughs> uh, no, we can't take any checks. Oh, well then I'll, um, 
I'll just pay you cash. Oh, no, we can't accept cash. Need to fill out this computer card. Then in these boxes, put your employee number. And we bill this back under uniform allowance. Comes out of your next Pan Am paycheck. Oh, that's even better. Go ahead and do that. <laughs> New York had two airports, LaGuardia and Kennedy. LaGuardia was 20 minutes from Manhattan. Kennedy was 50. So naturally, LaGuardia being the closer of the two, that's where I went. I spent most of the morning walking around LaGuardia trying to figure out, now that I had the uniform, how the hell do you get on these planes? <laughs> well, I got a little hungry about lunchtime, so I walked in the luncheonette, sat down at the counter, and ordered a sandwich. Moments later, a TWA crew walked in. Flight attendants sat in the booth, pilots up at the counter on either side of me, captain right next to me. Now, back before deregulation of the airlines, airline people thought of themselves as just one big family. So they didn't hesitate a moment to talk to each other, and the captain kind of leaned over. Hey, young man, how's Pan Am doing? Doing just fine, captain. Tell me, what's Pan Am doing out here at LaGuardia? Pan Am doesn't fly into LaGuardia, they only fly into Kennedy. <laughs> well, I picked up on that right away. Yeah, we came into Kennedy, had a short layover, came over to visit some friends of mine. Matter of fact, I'm on my way back to Kennedy now. So tell me, young man, uh, what type of equipment are you on? Now, airline people have a lot of jargon for things, and one of them is they never call a plane a plane or an aircraft, they call it equipment, and what type of equipment you're on meant what type of plane do you fly back then, a DC-8, a 707? Of course, I didn't know that, and I thought, what type of equipment? The only equipment I'm on is this stool. They must mean what type of equipment is on the planes I fly. So I thought, well, they've got the wings and they've got the engine. <laughs> they always had a sticker on the engine, who manufactured the engine. So I said, yes, General Electric. All three pilots kind of just stopped eating and leaned over. Captain said, oh, really? What do you fly, washing machines? So I knew I said the wrong thing, out the door I went. Everybody had an airline ID card, plastic, laminated card, much like a driver's license today, yet without the ID card. The uniform was worthless. I went back to Manhattan pretty discouraged, thinking, where would I come up with a Pan American Airline corporate ID? I was sitting in a hotel room. I noticed a big, thick New York Manhattan yellow pages, so I flipped them open and looked under the word identification. There were three or four pages of companies who made convention badges, metal badges, plastic badges, police badges, fire badges. Started to call around, and finally one company said, listen, most of those airline IDs manufactured by Polaroid, 3M company need to call one of them. Finally got the 3M company on the phone in Manhattan. Yeah, we manufacture Pan Am's identification system along with a number of other carriers. How come? So I tell you, I'm a purchasing officer for a major US carrier. I'm in New York just for the day. We're getting ready to expand our routes, hire a lot of new employees, go to a formal ID. We're very impressed with this Pan Am format. Wondered if I came by your office this afternoon, just briefly, we could discuss quantity and price. By all means, come on by. So I went by dressed in a suit. The sales rep opened the book. We do United, Delta, National, Eastern, Pan Am. Pan Am. We like this Pan Am format. Wonder if you might have a sample I could bring back. Sure, I'll be right back. And he brought me back a five by seven glossy piece of paper with a picture of an ID card blown up in the middle of it. Someone else's picture in the picture. John Doe for a name. And in bold red ink across the front, this is a sample only. I said, no, I'm afraid this won't do. You know, I need to bring back an actual physical card. And by the way, what is all this equipment on the floor? Oh, now, we don't just sell this card. We sell this system, camera, laminate. I see. We'd have to buy all of this. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, since we have to buy it all, why don't you just demonstrate how it works and use me? Fine. Have a seat right here. <laughs> Took my picture of the card. 
I was going down the elevator studying the card, had a blue border across the top, about a quarter of an inch in Pan Am's color blue, but not a single thing on the card said Pan Am. No logo, no insignia, no company name. This was a plastic card, like a credit card. You couldn't type on it, couldn't write on it, couldn't print on it. Discouraged, I put it in my pocket, headed back to the hotel. So as walking back, I noticed I had passed a hobby shop, so I turned around and walked back. Excuse me, sir, I see you sell a lot of models here. You sell models of commercial jetliners? Sure, over there. And I bought a model of a Pan Am 707 cargo jet for about $2.40, took it back to my room, opened the box, threw all the parts out, but there at the bottom of the box were the sheeted decals that went on the model. And when soaked in a glass of water, the little Pan Am globe that would have went on the tail of the plastic plane went perfect up at the top of the plastic card. And the word Pan Am in the special styling of graphics that would have went on the fuselage went perfect across the top of the card. And the clear decal on the laminated plastic made a beautiful identification card. Pan Am says they estimate that between the ages of 16 and 18, I flew more than a million miles for free, boarded more than 260 commercial aircraft in more than 26 countries around the world. Pan Am says keep in mind that though Frank Abagnale did in fact pose as one of our pilots, he never once stepped on board one of our aircraft. That's true. I never flew on Pan Am because I was afraid that someone might say to me, you know, I'm based in San Francisco, I've been out there 19 years. I don't recall ever meeting you before. Or someone might say, you know, your ID card is not exactly like my ID card. So instead, I flew on everyone else. If I wanted to go somewhere, I literally just walked out to the airport and looked on the board, United Flight 800 to Chicago. Then I went downstairs to the door marked United Operations and walked in. The operations clerk, a Pan Am, what can we do for you? I was wondering if the jump seat's open on 800. I need to deadhead to Chicago. Jump seat, it's open this evening. I'd like to get a pink slip pass. And I'd give him my ID, he'd write me out a pass. I'd walk out, hand it to the flight attendant. She'd open the door to the cockpit, and I'd step in. They had a captain, a co-pilot, a flight engineer, and a seat behind the captain called a jump seat, where pilots deadhead on company time. Now, because pilots love to talk shop, once you picked up that jargon, it was the same conversation over and over and over. <laughs> So I just step on board him, Jim, Bob Davis, be riding Chicago. On the taxi out, always the same question. So Bob, how long have you been with Pan Am? Been flying about seven years. What position you fly? A right seat, which is airline terminology for a co-pilot. What type of equipment are you on? Had that one down. Perfect. <laughs> Matter of fact, whatever they flew, I didn't fly. So I had no problems with that. When arriving in Chicago, I'd go by the Pan Am ticket counter just to get the attention of the passenger service rep. Is it going to help you? Excuse me, where do we lay over here? The dead at a trip for somebody got ill, never laid over in Chicago. So we use the Palmer House Hilton downtown. Catch the crew bus, lower level door, three up. I go down the Palmer House Hilton, walk in, and on the corner of the registration desk was a little sign that said airline cruise. That was a three-ring binder you signed in, referenced your flight number, showed your ID. I'd stay two or three days, and Pan Am would be direct billed for my room and my meals. <laughs> I also could cash a personal check at the front desk of the hotel because I'm an employee of the airline. The airline had a contract with the hotel, and as a courtesy, they'd cash your check up to $100. But then I found out that every airline honors every other airline employee's personal check, a reciprocal agreement, still practiced today in 2013. So at a DCA, a Delta flight attendant can walk up to an American ticket counter, show her Delta ID, and cash a personal check up to $100 and vice versa. Of course, when I found that out, I'd go out to JFK, only I'd go to everybody, Northeast, National, KLM, Air France. I mean, it would take me a good eight hours, go to every building all the way around the whole airport. By the time I got all the way around the other end of the airport, at least eight hours had gone by. What do you have in eight hours? Shift change, new people, so I'd go all the way back around the other way. 
I made a great deal of money. The only reason I quit at 18 is the FBI issued a John Doe warrant for interstate transportation of fraudulent checks, a federal offense. The John Doe warrant meant the FBI didn't know my identity. In the warrant, the FBI said, based on interviews with people I had contact with, I was approximately 30 years old. I was 18. Had a great deal of money, so I hung the uniform up and moved to Atlanta, Georgia. In Atlanta, I moved into a very swank singles complex that had just been built there called the Riverbend Apartments. On the application for the lease, there were a lot of questions for a teenage boy. One of them was occupation. I began to write down airline pilot, but the next question said super employer's name, supervisor's name, telephone contact. I thought to myself, I'll need to come up with something that would be impossible to check out, yet something that would justify why driving an expensive car or expensive clothes don't work much. So I wrote down the word doctor. First thing came to my mind, nothing else. But I had a very, apartment, uh, very inquisitive apartment manager. Oh, so I see here you're a doctor. Uh, yes, ma'am. What type of doctor are you? Well, I'm a, um, I'm a medical doctor. <laughs> However, I'm not practicing medicine right now. I left my practice out in Los Angeles to come to Atlanta to invest in some real estate I have. How interesting. Well, tell me, what type of medical doctor are you? And I figured being a singles complex pediatrician would be pretty safe. So I moved in, Dr. Frank Williams, pediatrician. Everybody called me doc, always the typical questions at the pool. So doc, where'd you go to medical school? Uh, Columbia University in New York. Where'd you serve your internship? A Harbor Children's Hospital out in LA. Once in a while when the guys would come by, hey Paul, hey doc, look at my leg. I don't know what I did to it, look at this. <laughs> Paul, I can't examine your leg, you need to go to your doctor and have him look at that. When the girls came by, I always gave them a thorough examination. <laughs> I was young, but not stupid. I was living there about two or three months. Everything was going great. One afternoon, there was a knock on the door. A very distinguished gentleman, mid-50s, standing there. Yes, I could help you. You're Dr. Williams? Yes. My name's Gordon. Just moved in the apartment down below. Wanted to come up and introduce myself. A new neighbor, come on in. I'm not only a new neighbor, I understand uh, you're a pediatrician. Yes, I'm the chief resident pediatrician of the county hospital up the street. <laughs> Dr. Gordon was going through a divorce. He just separated from his wife. He was very upset, very lonely. Every day on the way to the car, out to the pool, he'd stop you. And after a minute or two about the weather, he'd start speaking medical terminology, not being able to converse with him. I, in turn, would cut him short, but I knew eventually he'd get suspicious. Determined not to move, every day I went to Emory University's medical library. Every day I read the daily journals from Johns Hopkins, from the Mayo Clinic. Every day I took a certain part of the journal, memorized it in detail. And every night when Dr. Gordon pulled in his parking slot, and this is without exaggeration, every night I was sitting on his doorstep. Hey, Doc, hear about this new theory they're using up at Mayo? Uh, what is it tonight? Aggravated, I'd follow him into his apartment. He'd go into his bedroom, I'd go into his bedroom, sit on the bed. Be in the kitchen, I'd follow him back and forth. Be in the bathroom, I'd talk through the door. Pretty soon he'd come home, hey doc, I don't have time to talk to you right now, I gotta go. Guy started to avoid me, which is exactly what I wanted. One afternoon I received a phone call from the hospital administrator, who was not a physician, but the administrator of the hospital. Dr. Gordon suggested I give you a call, said you'd be more than happy to help us out. Uh, what's the problem? Uh, on the midnight tape shift, I have a resident supervisor, a number of interns, nurses on his shift, just been notified of a death in his family. He's returning to the West Coast tomorrow for about 10 days. A Georgia law requires a house doctor on duty to be a full practitioner or a specialist. Dr. Gordon said you had a great deal of free time. You'd be more than happy to cover the shift in an administrative capacity. Uh, there's no way I could do that. Why not? I'm not licensed to practice medicine in the state of Georgia. Just the state of California where I own my residency, all the red tape for 10 days. Uh, no red tape. We bring it before the medical review board tomorrow morning. 
They'll issue a temporary certificate, and you can start tomorrow night. Now, being one who hates to pass up a challenge, I couldn't help but give it a shot. So I went down to the hospital during my entire stay there. No one ever doubted for a second I was not a doctor. When the doctor returned, I was relieved and left the hospital. I did pass the bar in the state of Louisiana, not in two weeks as a movie implies, but in two months by taking the prep course that any law student would take to prepare themselves for the bar. At the time, Louisiana did not require a law degree to take the bar. I passed the bar. I went to work for Attorney General P.F. Grimion in the civil division of his state court, where I spent about a year, no one the wiser, on my own. I resigned and left. You know, like any criminal, sooner or later you get caught, and I was no exception to that rule. I was arrested actually just once in my life by the French police at the age of 21 in a small town in southern France. The French police arresting me actually on an Interpol warrant issued by the Swedish police who were looking for me for forgery and believed that I was living in southern France. When taken into custody by the French police, they soon realized I had forged checks all over France, so they refused to honor the extradition and the warrant. They later convicted me of forgery and sent me to French prison. I served my time in a place called the Maison d'Array, the House of Arrest, in a small town in southern France called Pepignan. Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters, it was extremely important for me to go back to that prison, to the exact cell he was in, and reconstruct it according to the logbooks during his stay there. He said that consisted of a blanket on the floor, a hole in the floor to go to the bathroom, no plumbing, no electricity. He said that I entered the prison at 198 pounds, left the prison according to the logbooks at 109 pounds. When my sentence was over in France, I was extradited to Sweden, where I was convicted of forgery and sent to a Swedish penitentiary in Malmo, Sweden. When my prison term was up in Sweden, U.S. federal authorities took custody of me, returned me to the United States, and eventually a United States federal judge sentenced me to 12 years in federal prison. I served four of those 12 years at a federal prison in Petersburg, Virginia. When I was 26 years old, the U.S. government offered to take me out of prison on the condition as part of my parole. I work with an agency of the federal government for the remainder of my sentence or until my parole had been satisfactorily completed. I agreed. In February of this year, I celebrated 37 years working with the FBI, which I do today. I make my home in Charleston, South Carolina. Thank you. I live in Charleston with my wife, my one and only wife, for 36 years, and my three sons. My youngest boy graduated from the University of Beijing in China, went on to get his master's degree at the University of Beijing. He reads, writes, and speaks Chinese fluently. He works for an American company in Beijing. He's 29 years old. My middle son graduated from University of Nevada in Las Vegas. Uh, his degree was in business. My wife owns a company in South Carolina. He manages that business and property for her. My oldest son, who's 33 now, graduated from University of Kansas. He went on to Loyola School of Law in Chicago, got his law degree, passed the bar there, went on to make his dad very, very proud. He's an FBI agent in the Baltimore field office in Baltimore. As many of you know, um, as many of you know, I had very little to do with the movie. Uh, I received no money from movies, Broadway musical, the television show White Collar. All of those things bring me no residuals because of my original agreement with the government some 37 years ago. I am very blessed that I've had some incredible people bring my story to the screen and to Broadway and tell my story in their own way. So my family and I feel very blessed by that. 
But needless to say, I get a lot of emails every day. They come from all over the world. They come from people as young as eight years old to people as old as 80. They're probably seeing maybe the movie for the first time on television. Some of the emails people write and say, you know, you were brilliant. You were an absolute genius. I was neither. I was just a child. Had it been brilliant, had it been a genius, I don't know that I would have found it necessary to break the law in order to just simply survive. And while I know that there are people fascinated by what I did almost 50 years ago as a teenage boy, I've always looked upon what I did as something that was immoral, illegal, unethical, and a burden I live with every single day of my life. There are many who write and say, well, you know, you were certainly gifted that I was. I was one of those few children who got to grow up in the world with a daddy. The world is full of fathers. But there are very few men worthy of being called daddy by their child. I had a daddy, loved his children, more than he loved life itself. My father had three boys and a daughter. He was six foot three. Every night at bedtime, he'd walk into your room. He'd drop down on one knee, kiss you on the cheek, pull the cover up. He'd put his lip up on your earlobe and he'd whisper in your ear, I love you. I love you very much. He never missed a night. As I grew older, I sometimes fell asleep before I got home. But I always woke up the next morning, knew he had been by my bedside. Years later, my older brother joined me in my room. He was 6'4 in the Marine Corps, but when he came home on leave, my father would walk around to his bed, hug him, kiss him, whisper in his ear he loved him. When I was 16 years old, I was just a child. All 16-year-olds are just children. As much as we like them to be adults, they're just children. And like all children, they need their mother and they need their father. All children need their mother and their father. All children are entitled to their mother and their father. And though it is not popular to say so, divorce is a very devastating thing for a child to deal with and then have to deal with the rest of their natural life. For me, a complete stranger said I had to choose one parent over the other. There was no choice, so I ran. How could I tell you my life was glamorous? I cried myself to sleep till I was 19 years old. I spent every birthday, Christmas, Mother's Day, Father's Day in a hotel room somewhere in the world by myself. When I was sick, I took care of myself. The only people that associated with me were the people who believed me to be their peer, 10 years older than I actually was. I never got to go to a senior prom, high school football game, or even share a relationship with someone my own age. I always knew I'd get caught. Only a fool would think otherwise. The law sometimes sleeps, but the law never dies. I was caught. I went to some very bad places. My boys have grown up asking their mother, why is it that dad gets up in the middle of the night and goes down the TV room? Because he doesn't turn the TV on. He just sits there all night. Because there are things you can't forget, things you're not meant to forget. While I was sitting in that pitch black cell in France, my father, 57, was climbing the subway stairs in New York as he did every day, only on this particular day, he tripped. He was in great physical shape. He just slipped. He reached his arm out to break his fall. He slipped again, hit his head on a railing, landed at the bottom of the step. He was dead. I didn't know he was dead. I was sitting in that cell thinking about him, how much I couldn't wait to see him, hold him, hug him, kiss him, tell him how sorry I was. But I never got the opportunity to do that. I was very fortunate because I was brought up in a great country where everyone 
gets a second chance. I owe my country 800 times more than I could ever repay it for the opportunities it's given me these past 37 years. That is why I'm at the FBI today, 26 years beyond my legal obligation to do so. I have turned down three pardons from three sitting presidents of the United States because I do not believe, nor will I ever believe, that a piece of paper will excuse my actions, that only in the end my actions will. 36 years ago, on an undercover assignment in Houston, Texas, I met my wife. When the assignment was over, I broke protocol to tell her who I really was. Didn't have a dime to my name. I eventually asked her to marry me against the wishes of her parents. She did. Now, I could sit here and tell you I was born again. I saw the light. Prison rehabilitated me. But the truth is, God gave me a wife. She gave me three beautiful children. She gave me a family, and she changed my life. She and she alone. Everything I have, everything I've achieved, who I am today is because of love of a woman and the respect three boys have for their father. There comes a time in all of our lifetimes that we grow up and we have children. And as every parent in this room knows, whether your child is three months old or 33 years old, when you lay your head on a pillow at night, no matter where that pillow is, and you're just about to close your eyes, the last thing you think about, the last thing you worry about are your children. So if you still have your mother, you still have your father, you give them a hug, you give them a kiss, you tell them you love them. And to those men in the audience, both young and old, I will remind you what it truly is to actually be a man. It has absolutely nothing to do with money, achievements, skills, accomplishments, degrees, professions, positions. A real man loves his wife. A real man is faithful to his wife. And a real man next to God and his country put his wife and his children as the most important thing in his life. Steven Spielberg made a wonderful film, but I've done nothing greater, nothing more rewarding, nothing more worthwhile, nothing that's brought me more peace, more joy, more happiness, more content in my life than simply being a good husband, a good father, and what I strive to do every day of my life, a great daddy. God bless you, and thanks for having me today. It's been a pleasure to be here.